3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. to 8:30 a.m. Good morning, listeners. You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast, 8:55 a.m. And Rosie, it is just gone 7:01 in the morning. I don't know why you're giggling. You were making just a very amusing face. I was just doing like a. Oh, I'm tired and I feel a bit crummy this morning, but um, it's nice to hear your voice on radio. It looks kind of like a frog. Um, okay. <laughs> anyway, so, uh, you know, vis- visualize that. I hope you're having um, a good morning, um, an okay morning. I think okay is better than bad, right, for everybody that's tuning in. Um, yeah, I, I've, I've been thinking a lot about mental health stuff, and I know a lot of people are really finding the the cumulative effects of all of the lockdowns incredibly draining. And I know people are really struggling to reach out for help, especially because they can see other people around them struggling. But this is just a reminder, if you have capacity, check in with your friends, um, even if it's just dropping them a line to ask how they're going. I'm not saying like, are you okay day type, are you okay text, but more just, you know, do you want to go for a walk if you're within the 15K? Um, is there anything that you need? Can I drop you off something? That kind of thing, because I know people are struggling. And if you really are um, doing it tough, you can always call Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114. Yeah, it is It is getting really challenging and uh, also just, you know, acknowledging as well, like all of the potential anxieties for people about um, the possibilities of reopening or that process as well um, and the kind of um, stress that that can cause for, for people. And um, uh, so, yeah. There's, there's lots going on, really. Yeah. And, you know, just once again, reminder, uh, keep checking those exposure sites on the Victorian Government Department of Health website. Um, you know, keep keep taking those precautions, wear your mask, uh, sanitize your hands, get vaccinated if you can. Um, and, yeah, encourage people around you, um, you know, have those difficult conversations about vaccination and public health. You know, we know that these things are safe and effective and this is really our road to getting out of this. And, you know, it can't it's 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 like a union, guys. You know, you can't just have one person join it. Um, You need everybody to get involved. Absolutely. I definitely stole that from someone on Twitter. Shout out to whoever that have posted that. I'm so bad at citing and I'm in academia. Can you believe it? <laughs> um, all right. So we've got, um, we've got a very interesting show lined up for today. Shall we jump into the rundown? Yeah. So um, last week uh, we spoke with Dimity Hawkins about the Raucous Antiochus Caucus, um, which was held last Thursday night, organised by the Renegade Activists. And the webinar featured a panel discussion on concerns around the AUKUS alliance between Australia, the UK and the US. And this morning we're going to hear from one of those pal- panellists, Tale Mangioni and Scott Ludlam, sorry, two of the panellists, who both spoke at the event. Um, and Tale begins, yeah, um, that discussion and will yeah, be really good to hear part, part of that as well. Yeah, and you can find out more and I'm, I'm guessing um, hear more of the discussion at renegadeactivists.org. 
And after that, we're going to be joined by Samantha Floriani, who's the program lead at Digital Rights Watch. And Samantha's joining us to speak about the basic online safety expectations, which fall under the Online Safety Act, and provide the minister with broad discretion to define the parameters for digital safety and content restrictions on social media and other online services, which will be enforced by the e-commissioner. So I know that sounds pretty uh, pretty meaty, pretty heavy, but Samantha's kindly taken the time to walk us through some of that because there's a public consultation on the draft expectations, which closes tomorrow, Friday the 15th of October. And you can have your say by heading to infrastructure.gov.au and looking up basic online safety expectations. And then we'll be speaking with Ian Rintoul, the spokesperson for the Refugee Action Coalition in Sydney. We're going to discuss the current safety of people detained in the Melbourne Immigration Transit Accommodation, or MITRE, um, centre in Broadmeadows, after a guard, another guard continu- um, c- contracted and tested positive for COVID-19. And finally, we're going to be joined by Murning Elder and Whale Songman Bunalori from the Nullarbor. He is a founding member of the band Coloured Stone and has spent many years fighting to protect his country. And he's joining to speak with us about the fact that this week, the first stage of the UN Biodiversity Conference, which was held in Kunming, China, um, discussed nation states setting targets for biodiversity protection that may or may not be met. Um, and he wants to talk to us about the knowledge of First Nations people in protecting the lands and waters across the continent and um, basically about protecting country and why it's important to learn about and think about the animals and plants specifically when we that we're talking about when we say biodiversity. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I think that will be really interesting. Um, some of the headlines that we're going to cover in a moment are around that um, biodiversity conference. And um, I think it will be really in- interesting, like, yeah, Bana has a lot of knowledge about um, whales, obviously, and, and biodiversity of the Southern Ocean. So I'm really looking forward to that chat. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, um, you know, gets us to in- uh, or encourages us to think about things from, you know, a, a perspective that usually doesn't get um, elevated at these, uh, you know, international fora. Yeah, I was actually thinking about that, reading some of the reporting on this um, UN conference and just thinking like here on this continent, like there's not a single mention of First Nations people in that reporting, like that's a completely different issue in the mind of the media or something. And yeah, it seems like a real shame not to not to elevate and turn to that knowledge and yeah, leadership. Yeah, so definitely stay tuned to uh, for the last part of the show especially, but also for all of it in general. Hi, I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. And now I've got the news headlines for today, the 14th of October. First Nations communities and leading health experts are pleading with states and territories to reconsider plans to ease lockdown restrictions until vaccination rates of First Nations people improve. Across Australia, only 35% of First Nations people aged over 12 are fully vaccinated, but this is not being accounted for by state-level authorities. 
Families in Gippsland and Mildura are battling fresh outbreaks this week, and in New South Wales, schools and childcare centres in Walgett are closed following a spike in cases last week. Communities are calling for support to continue grassroots responses addressing misinformation and distrust about the vaccine. And health workers going door-to-door in communities note the need for culturally safe, holistic responses, saying their interactions with families indicate other health issues are also going unchecked during this crisis. In other news from the UN Biodiversity Conference in China, representatives from nearly 200 countries met to form the Kunming Declaration and Framework, aimed at halting and reversing biodiversity loss. Research highlights failings at all levels to act appropriately in response to accelerating rates of natural destruction. And Chinese President Xi Jinping announced more than 315 million Australian dollars in funding to support biodiversity protection for developing countries. Um, But this is a drop in the ocean compared to China's belt and road infrastructure initiatives that are harming natural environments around the world. In Australia, environmental groups are speaking out about the lack of leadership from state and federal governments in setting targets to increase biodiversity protection. Milestones set at COP15, that's the name of the conference, aim to protect 30% of all land and sea areas by 2030. But while Australia supports this goal at a global ta- this global target, the government has not set any domestic commitments. And finally, in Victoria, a report was released this week that details the failure of the state government to halt the decline and extinction of Australia's unique plants and animals. Report findings indicate Andrew's government has consistently opted for funding the lowest cost programs to mitigate the decline, which does not come close to meeting targets in the government's own biodiversity strategy. And actually, absolutely huge news coming out of Wilcannia yesterday is that Wilcannia has celebrated two weeks without a new COVID case um, after it was hit like a cyclone. And that's a quote from um, locals about, uh, you know, by by COVID-19. And just really want to thank Monica Kerwin, uh, who's a Barkindji woman who lives in Wilcannia, for taking the time to come on the show a couple of weeks ago and talk to us, um, you know, as that crisis was unfolding. It's just, you know, amazing how the community has mobilized to, to protect each other. And, um, you know, in the, in the absence of consistent and sustained government support, even though Aboriginal communities had been asking for resourcing to make sure that a tragedy like this didn't happen, um, there have now been no new COVID cases for two weeks. So 15th consecutive day of no new cases and no active cases in Wilcannia right now. That's really awesome. So good to have some good news. Yeah, it's I mean. Definitely important to keep an eye out, as as you mentioned, Walgett, um, other Aboriginal communities and, um, you know, Victorian Aboriginal Health Services are doing a, a really great job here to try and keep pushing that vaccination rollout, making sure um, that these concerning roadmap opening targets um, are really not leaving behind Aboriginal communities. But that's definitely something to, to keep watching. Mm. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. 
to having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Thursday morning breakfast, 8.55 a.m. And it is 7, or it's about to be 7.13 in the morning. I'm just counting down the seconds on the little clock. And as we mentioned before, uh, Wolcania is now 15 consecutive days COVID free, uh, no, no new COVID cases and there are no active COVID cases. And um, in honor of that and shout out to Wolcania residents and Barkindy people that have been doing so much to organize around this, um, this is King Brown by Barka. Call me King Brown. Well, if I'm so toxic, why are you ringing now? You think you a man? This is my house. I'm sorry. Where the fuck is my crown now? I keep it. I just only want my land back. So give it. Hey, I'm fucking with my mental because I'm independent. When I left him, he said, go ahead. You regret it. I ain't regret you because look at where Sissy's heading. Putting my You don't speak my language. I got signed up because Sissy is so hard to manage. I got a back at best. Stab safe and least damage. Got your new Checking in, she a fan bitch Got only standards, she demanding I respect him Hand lined up at ten and leave, demanding for a check Come so I wouldn't come for him, I'm coming for his neck I'm so sorry, but it's time to rain down on that bitch Now I ain't sorry, I sorry, who the baby daddy me Tears pouring, sorry baby, you can't baby mama me And I'm sitting back here yawning, cause I'm living drama free And they keep running back to me, cause Bark is a base Call me Brown, you ain't fucking with me
You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast, and that was King Brown by Barker. And up next, we're going to hear from two speakers from the Raucous Anti-Orcus Caucus, a panel that was organised by renegade activists and held last Thursday, the 7th of October. The panel featured a discussion on concerns around the AUKUS alliance between Australia, the UK and the US, and um, we're going to begin by hearing hearing from Tale Mangione, um, and she begins with the reaction of Pacific Nations people to the AUKUS announcement. Thanks for having me, and thanks for inviting me to this session. Really honoured to be here. Um, Yeah, I think it's deeply unsettling for a lot of Pacific people based on their history. and before I begin, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm currently living and working on the lands of Ngunnawal and Ngambri people here in Canberra. Um, so today I'm speaking with you as a Pacific Studies educator in Australia and a member of Young Solwara Pacific, a regional movement comprised of a constellation of activists from the Pacific that stand for a nuclear free and independent Pacific. As a woman of Fijian heritage who grew up in Sydney, I'm quite well acquainted with how Australia and big powers like the UK and US of AUKUS views the Pacific in a historical and contemporary sense. Our ocean, which accounts actually for one third of the world's surface area, is viewed through a white colonial gaze that perpetuates a false narrative. Our Pacific region is constantly belittled, viewed as empty, void, and just a crossing point between several big important land masses. And yet conveniently, nearly all colonial powers from the late 19th century rushed to plant their flags on our islands and claimed them as their own. For centuries, Indigenous populations and islands have been seen as tiny, insignificant and on the margins of global affairs, geopolitics and international relations. But as the nuclear history of the Pacific demonstrates, we are on the front line and centre of all these things. Most Australians have no idea that the Indigenous land of this country and our Pacific neighbours have been sacrifice zones for the interests of nuclear colonialism. 318 atmospheric and underground nuclear tests took place of what is currently known as the Marshall Islands, Australia, Kiribati and French Polynesia, when there were territories or colonies of the powers um, of America, the UK, Australia and France respectively. The fallout didn't just conveniently end at the end of the state border drawn in the ocean. Nuclear fallout was transboundary harm and impacted many countries across the Pacific. What's more is that the Pacific has historically been a site of many instances of improper nuclear waste dumping, nuclear storage and nuclear power gone wrong, like in the case of Fukushima. In addition, United States military bases and port facilities are likely to store these weapons with their vessels carrying them with this um, neither confirm or deny policy. AUKUS and these nuclear submarines that Australia plans to build are just another extension of this nuclear architecture in the Pacific, which is a world that has actively resisted and protested it for decades. The first step to building solidarity with um, Pacific peoples is education of everyday Australians about their place within the region and how we are vastly out of step with the needs and wants of Pacific peoples. How are most of the deaths at DFAT nowadays dedicated to the Pacific Islands? Um, and I'm wondering if they know the names of Muraroa, Fangatalfa, Bikini, Kiramati, Johnston, Emufield, Maralinga and Montebello. As a young person growing up in Australia, you're rarely taught anything about the Pacific within our school system, besides maybe a Kokoda track story bound out in all types of Anzac mythology. And we see ourselves as completely divorced from the Pacific region, um, with no sense of our former colonial past with territories like New Guinea and Nauru. Um, to just generally widespread and continuing economic imperialism. Instead, it's framed as either a holiday retreat or a place with corrupt, unstable, aid-dependent or hungry governments. 
Um, only very recently and very suddenly has Scott Morrison attempted a diplomatic step up in the region. And this is a very transparent move to counter China with America. Now he's calling islanders his specific family of Ovale, as you say, in Fijian, while at the same time agreeing to this military submarine pact without any consent of Pacific leaders. And in my opinion, as a um, Pacific person living in Australia, Australia's historically flippant approach, plus their neocolonial policy decision, decisions like AUKUS, is not family behaviour. Family in this instance means knowing, valuing and learning about Pacific people's cultural diversity, their history, their relationships and stemming political dynamics here. There's potential for true kinship and solidarity um, on an equal playing field instead of unequal paternalistic big brother and little brother scenarios. Um, I think Australians should learn that the Pacific time and time again has stood up for a nuclear free and independent Pacific from the grassroots to governmental levels for over four decades. Australia should listen to our Pacific leaders like Prime Minister Taneti Ma'amau of Kiribati, who recently said the AUKUS nuclear, nuclear submarine deal puts the Pacific at risk, or Reverend James Bhagwan from the Pacific Conference of Churches, who said AUKUS strikes at the heart of Pacific regionalism. AUKUS puts a target on the backs of my family and friends in the islands, and I think nuclear submarines are not a peaceful solution to anything. So a key priority for issues of our region are definitely climate change and COVID-19. We need to recenter these. I think we can all agree here that this is where Australian tax dollars need to go, not to a new Cold War. And, yeah, on behalf of Young Solara Pacific, we call for nuclear waves. I'm just going to show my shirt. Not old nuclear waves. So, yeah, that's my piece. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Talay. And new clear ways, and it's great to have the new clear thinking rather than the old nuclear at all cost scenario that we've been getting used to, unfortunately, um, through the, in this country. Now, our final speaker is a former Australian politician, a member of the Australian Greens. He served in the Australian Senate from July 08 to July 17. Nine years was it that long? and as a Deputy Leader of the Australian Greens from 15 to 17. He's also worked as a filmmaker, artist, graphic designer, and it's not listed here in his bio, but I'm going to add garlic grower. Um, his most recent book, Full Circle, published um, this year, is his, um, well, it's not his most recent book, it's his first book, that makes it his more recent. Scott Ludlam, welcome to our little renegade corner of cyberspace for the evening. Thanks, heaps, Jacob. It's not so little. Ten days' notice, there appear to be 200 people here. Yeah, Scott, reading your book, Full Circle, um, what I saw as one of the central narratives of the book was, let's call it the backbone of the book, in, you know, as a backbone of hope amongst all the carnage that we find ourselves in the strange world we're living in. The AUKUS announcement um, last month knocked a few of us for six, I've got to say. Where do you find the hope in the face of it all, man? Well... I I feel I think I'm the last of the the speakers before we run out to the breakout group. So I feel like I've got the best job of all. This the announcement's a disaster. I mean, there's no two ways about it. It's a catastrophe. But the reason it gives me hope is that it opens up a bunch of opportunities for us. I don't know that we could have put 200 really motivated and interested people together on a call about militarism and the nuclearization of our region without 
So I think this is actually a really big opportunity for us. Um, I want to run through a couple of reasons why I think that, and then just to really kick a conversation off that we can take into the breakouts. So the first one is this. I don't think this is a government, right, that none of us would trust to fold laundry unsupervised, and they've taken on one of the most complex and difficult procurement projects that any government can take on. This is going to cost people their careers. It's an absolutely unforgiving technology, and it's going to give us so many opportunities for campaigning because it's going to be a debacle. I don't see how it can be anything else. The main opportunity I think it presents us with is the opportunity to refresh and to rebuild the peace movement and to set it on a new course. I think there are probably folk on this call who weren't even alive when the invasion of Iraq happened. And that fresh energy is going to meet the remarkable wisdom that we've heard from many of the speakers um, tonight and from the other movement elders who are on this call, people with enormous history and recall of where this movement has been, um, people who fought for comprehensive test ban treaty and won, uh, people who fought through the late Cold War and saw steep reductions in nuclear weapons. Um, we lost one of our elders in the last week, and I just want to acknowledge how much we're going to miss Paul Barrett um, in, this, in this fight that's upon us now. So we have to, um, I think, the challenge that's upon us at the moment is, and where the magic is, is going to be is when that wisdom meets the fresh energy of folk who are going to be drawn into this movement by being freaked out by the absolute lunacy of this announcement. That's where the magic's going to be. There probably will be growing pains, but I reckon they're going to be a lot kinder and more interesting than shrinking pains. Um, so if you're new to the work, then welcome to the movement cascade where every domino that we push over has a chance of taking a few more with it. And that's what I think is going to be really interesting about the next couple of months. The opportunity that we've got is that we've got some very strange allies for the time being, maybe not for the broader anti-militarism project, but at least on the subject of this deranged nuclear submarines decision, we've got Paul Keating, Kevin Rudd and Malcolm Turnbull singing Kumbaya around the fire with us. We've got people like Hugh White, um, folk at Aspie, and people in pretty conservative corners of defence and foreign policy with quite big megaphones who were scratching their heads, looking at the direct costs, looking at the diplomatic carnage that this thing has created, and arguing that there's, there's – I don't think there's any need for us to feel as though we're arguing from some sort of extreme. I just don't think we are. On the 28th of last month, so what would that have been, like a week or 10 days after the announcement, the essential – uh, put a poll into the field that found, I'm just going to add this polling figure to the, to the numbers that Clinton read in for us before, that 50 specialists or whatever, 55% of ordinary Australians reckon the AUKUS announcement and the submarines either won't make us more secure, i.e. there'll be no difference to our material security, or it's going to make us less secure. So there's a, there's a big wedge of the Australian public a narrow majority who think this either doesn't affect security at all or it makes us less safe. That's a huge ground on which to build a movement. So I think what we're going to be doing is strengthening, and we've heard this tonight um, from folk like Dimity and, and Dave, that this will help us strengthen the deep and abiding relationship between the peace movement and the anti-nuclear movement. We've got frontline communities in Perth and Adelaide 
who are going to be ropeable when they realise what Morrison has signed them up to. The nuclear waste transport, the security, the borderline police state that you need to set in place where these things are fabricated and hosted. Every single activist and organiser in the country who could have used that $100 billion for housing affordability or to fight poverty or for clean energy projects. Every single one of these people are our allies now, as well as people right across the Asia-Pacific region whose lives are at risk because of this arms race that our government has initiated. The last thing I guess I want to say is this is a big campaign. This is going to take a while. This has got a long lead time. We don't have to panic. We have time to think. It's going to span everything from port blockades to the White House. But I always take heart to go to your question, Jacob, about hope from the fact that even the biggest campaigns are made up of small actions. Every conversation that we have, every banner that we paint or every story that we share online, every event we organise, it builds into a thing that's bigger than any of us. That's what builds the movement cascade that can create a political earthquake just a step at a time. None of us know how it's going to turn out, but I would so much rather be on our side of this argument than on the other. I'm going to leave the last word from someone much more eloquent than me. I think it's the most important thing that we can be doing in a movement-building phase. And this is kind of gorgeous quote from Timothy Leary, where he says, who knows what you might learn from taking a chance on a conversation with a stranger? Everyone carries a piece of the puzzle. Nobody comes into your life by mere coincidence. So trust your instincts, do the unexpected, and find the others. So on this call tonight, we found each other, and now we've got to go find the others. Thanks so much for putting together such an awesome event at very short notice. So you just heard from Scott Ludlam and Tale Mangione, who both spoke at the event um, the raucous anti-orcus caucus which is held on thursday october 7th 2021 and this was organized by the renegade activists and this webinar featured a panel discussion on concerns around the orcus alliance between australia the uk and the us and you can find out more information about how that event went down and more uh, information about what renegade activists are up to at renegadeactivists.org You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and it is 7.32 in the morning. And we're going to go to another track. This is the new one from Seba and Pricey. This is Surrender.
They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast, and the track you just heard was Surrender by Seba featuring Pricey. And now we're going to be joined by Samantha Floriani, who's the program lead at Digital Rights Watch. And Samantha joins us to speak about the basic online safety expectations, which fall under the Online Safety Act and provide the minister with broad discretion to define parameters for digital safety and content restrictions on social media and other online services. Hey, Samantha, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me here. Yeah, absolute pleasure. I think... um, you know, the, the the basic description I gave just then was pretty dense, so it's really good to have um, an expert come on to, to talk us through what's kind of going on with these online safety expectations. Um, so the Online Safety Bill 2021 passed in July, and there's been pretty widespread concern raised about the piece of legislation, um, including by sex workers. And listeners might remember that we have previously had Gallivanting from Scarlet Alliance on to speak on this. So could you give listeners a broad overview of the Act and its key aims before we get into the basic online safety expectations in particular? Yeah, absolutely. And and as you say, it's, it's a pretty dense area. There's a lot that is trying to be achieved within this one piece of legislation. And if people have been paying attention, there's there's been quite a lot of consultation happening simultaneously at the moment. So it's a pretty, um, it's a pretty hectic area at the moment. So the Online Safety Act um, was introduced in December of 2020, so last year. And one of the things that really stood out at the time was just how fast, how, how rushed the consultation process was. There was a lot of public concern, as you mentioned, from sex worker groups, from digital rights groups, from... Um, all kinds of uh, communities made submissions, over 300 submissions onto the Act, which is a lot. Um, and then it, it just it went on to pass with very minimal changes. Uh, so that in itself is a concern. But the legislation itself seeks to do quite a lot at once. So it contains six key areas. So bear with me while I, while I run through them. So there's a cyberbullying scheme, which is to remove harmful content to children, a cyber abuse scheme to remove material that's harmful to adults. Then there's the image-based abuse scheme, which adds more powers to, to a scheme that already existed, which was all about removing intimate images that have been shared without consent. There's an online content scheme, which is essentially a, a scheme to, for the broad removal of content through takedown powers and removal notices. Um, There is an abhorrent violent material blocking scheme to block websites if they host violent content. And then there's the basic online safety expectations, which kind of ties it all together. Um, So obviously that there's quite a lot in there. And and I think the scope of this is much bigger than people might realise. So it covers... um, Social media services, uh, designated—I uh, can't remember the the, the I can't remember the 
technical wording off the top of my head now, but it covers social media services, obviously a big one, but mm-hmm. it also covers things like um, email and instant messaging and SMS. So mm-hmm. your personal communications could be swept up in there. Yeah. But one thing I want to like highlight just straight off the bat is that not all of it is bad. And I want to make it really clear that like these issue, issues like, um, you know, abuse and harassment and sharing of intimate images without consent online are, are really important issues that do need to be tackled. The problem is, is that this bill contains really, sorry, not, it's not a bill, it's an act now, it's passed, <laughs> contains really broad and vague powers, um, which can bring up all kinds of additional harms. We want to make it, we really was pushing to try to make it so that in the quest to reduce harm, we don't create more harm, but unfortunately, it passed as it is. Yeah. And I think this is, this is definitely the thing, right? Like we, we're all, you know, trying to, to fight for, for better, you know, better being able to exercise our digital rights online, including the right not to be harassed and violated online. But at the same time, having these kinds of blanket measures, um, yeah, really raise the risk of compromising um, the ways that we interact online instead. So um, the basic online safety expectations, um, as you've mentioned, is one just one part of this Act. Um, it falls under Section 4, and they're to be defined by the relevant minister by legislative instrument. Um, so what are some of your concerns about the scope and application of ministerial authority when it comes to setting and enforcing these expectations for social media providers? And I think the other one was basically just designated online services, which is quite broad. Yeah, it's, that's, that is, that's the word, and you're right. Too early for my brain to <laughs> click in <laughs> to legislation talk. Um, yes, it's super broad. So the draft basic online safety expectations is a determination, as, as I think you mentioned. So that essentially what that means is that it is um, determined by the minister and there's no voting on it in parliament. Um, so that can raise some questions around accountability and around the process of, of defining these expectations. Um, to be fair, there is a public consultation happening at the moment, and in the legislation it does say that there needs to be some form of um, public consultation if there were to be any changes made. So that, you know, in fairness, <laughs> in fairness and credit where credit's due, that is in there. Mm-hmm. We would like to see more... Um, more a more clear uh, commitment to accountability when de- determining these um, expectations because they can yeah as I said they can be changed pretty much whenever the minister might might decide to do it now again to be fair there are some circumstances given that this is we're talking about in the digital space and technology changes really quickly there is some need to be flexible so we can appreciate why maybe that was part of the the um, approach, but at the same time, these expectations, which I'm sure we'll get into in a minute, have quite, you know, have the potential to be quite, uh, <laughs> to cause to cause quite a lot of issues. And so we really do need to have that consultation process for, for effective communities and digital rights groups and other human rights groups to be able to have their say on it so that they, so that we can get the balance right. Because really we want, we want online safety to be improved. Everyone wants that to happen, right? I don't think you'd find many people working in this space who are, you know, campaigning against improving mm-hmm. safety. But if we don't get the balance right, then, as I said, we'll just cause more harm more harm than good. Yeah, absolutely. And just um, 
On a bit of a side note, um, before we get into the next question, I just wanted to mention the fact that, um, you know, around this legislative instrument mechanism, um, that concern really is that, you know, when particular pieces of legislation go through and there are areas that can be uh, defined by the minister via legislative instrument, as you mentioned, they're not subject to parliamentary scrutiny. And I know that um, the Senate Standing Community, uh, sorry, the Senate Standing Committee for the Scrutiny of Delegated Legislation actually had an inquiry into the exemption of delegated legislation from parliamentary oversight last year and released a report early this year. So this is something that's happening across the board and definitely something to be aware of across a whole range of of legislation that's passing, just the ability for the relevant minister to um, make a lot of decisions that, yeah, are not um, that are not subject to that kind of scrutiny and don't need to be voted on. Um, So moving back to uh, the expectations How do you anticipate that service providers are going to be uh, responding to the basic online safety expectations um, once they are, you know, put in place by the minister and who's going to be most affected? And uh, what consequences do you foresee for the most marginalized um, online service users? Yeah, great. That's that's a huge question. Um, The first but first, I, I might just highlight a couple of the things that are in the expectations and then we'll go into um, why we're concerned. So the the expectations list um, core expectations and additional expectations. And like there's a lot in there, so I'll just pick out um, sort of the the key ones in my opinion. So Mm -hmm. they're all about getting um, providers of services to take reasonable steps. So reasonable steps to minimise harm, reasonable steps to um, ensure end users are able to use their service in a safe manner. They're expected to consult with the safety commissioner and they're expected to take steps um, to remove certain kinds of material, included, including material that's considered to be bullying, abuse. Um, again, there's non-consensual intimate images, class one and class two material, which um, is essentially anything that would or could be classified as R18 plus or above in the the National Classification Code, which is a a whole other conversation there about how we determine what is and isn't offensive and what isn't isn't harmful, which is a really tricky um, Mm -hmm. and complicated and nuanced area, and that in and of itself is is something to consider. Um, And the expectations also require providers... um, Essentially, they, they push providers to uh, undermine their encryption to be able to, to you know, unmask who is using their services and who is sharing what sort of content and things like that. And also, they push them to prevent or to minimise people using anonymous um, anonymous accounts. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's quite a lot in those expectations. So in terms of the concerns and the you know, the possible impacts um, and uh, the the way that service providers might might respond to these expectations. There are three key concerns in, in my mind, um, and that is the, the undermining of encryption, which, you know, encryption, I'll get into it in a little bit more detail, but encryption is essential to our digital security. So any, any move to undermine it undermines the safety of all of us. So it's kind of counterintuitive to the entire goal of the mm-hmm. of the act in my mind. Um, the second is preventing people from using uh, services anonymously. Uh, using services anonymously is, is really important. Um, and the third is 
that it will incentivize uh, companies to move even more towards things like automated content moderation. Mm. So, you know, one of the key concerns that we raised when this was initially proposed in the bill before it passed was that the expectations essentially um, they incentivize proactive monitoring and removal of content that may fall under class one or class two material. But given that, you know, the scale of the content that these platforms have to deal with, we would anticipate that they will turn more to toward automated content moderation and detecting processes than they already currently do. So this means using things like machine learning and other techniques to figure out what kind of content is or is not mm. harmful so that they can avoid, um, you know, getting caught up in, in um you know, getting in trouble with the safety commissioner, essentially. And so the trouble is that we, we already know that automated content moderation results in disproportionate removal of Indigenous people, Black people, fat people, disabled people, queer, and, of course, sex worker content. And so, you know, that stands to sort of exacerbate the um, kind of inequality and the kind of harm in real life also, but you know, and translate them to, to online spaces. So that's a real mm. concern. Um, I mean, in 2018, <clears throat> Mark Zuckerberg said that it's easier to, t- to detect a nipple than to detect hate speech with AI, which I think for a lot of people who are online will have seen this essentially that, you know, women and non-binary people and, and trans people will have their, their content removed really, really quickly, and all the while, you know, you can see someone else posting awful sexist and racist comments, and they seem to get away with it. Yeah, absolutely, (sighs) and definitely... Um, you know, something something for listeners to, to be um, constantly mindful of is, you know, these machine learning and automated uh, processes, you know, they are coded with the biases of the people that, you know, train these algorithms. Um, so it's not, you know, it's not something that's like, you know, completely neutral of biases that already exist in Absolutely. society. Um, oh, so, and race comes yeah. in. Well, I was just going to highlight that race race comes into it a lot like you will often see as an example like a lot of this stuff is around sexual content but let's keep it in that sort of realm you'll often see on social media platforms that you know thin white cisgendered women are able to be pretty you know pretty nude online but you know um black women and um, women with darker skin tones get removed really really Mm -hmm. quickly and so there is that racial bias as well which is super harmful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so just briefly, do you see any potential interactions between the Online Safety Act and the Identify and Disrupt Act? Because we've been thinking about this lately as well. Um, and I was wondering if you could comment on government encroachment on digital rights and privacy across the board, including, you know, referring back to that discussion about encryption and anonymity. Yeah, well, I think they all sort of start to fit together in an, like an overarching encroachment on digital rights and just it signals just how much the government is willing to sacrifice things like privacy and security in the pursuit of other, you know, political agendas. This, you know, online safety, this has been a huge point scoring exercise for the government. It, you know, because it sounds, it 
sounds really good on face value, right? It sounds it sounds like they're protecting, you know, women and children. They're they're fighting the good fight, and but the trouble is, is that that narrative kind of obfuscates all of the detail that's happening underneath that is quietly eroding um, rights and quietly eroding our you know our ability to be safe and secure online mm-hmm. and. And as you've highlighted, a lot of you know a lot of marginalised groups as well. So I, that is that is super. It's frustrating, and mm-hmm. the problem is as well is that we are seeing, um, you know, in the UK they are having very very similar conversations about online safety and looking at very similar approaches. And they they turn to us and they see what we've passed and see it as like oh well you know another jurisdiction has passed this legislation, mm-hmm. so we'll take that as inspiration. And that's I mean, in 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 my opinion, that's a terrible outcome because we are leading the way in a sense, but it's in a bad direction. Yeah. So when you combine the Online Safety Act with the Identify and Disrupt Act, you know, we're, we're creating a, quite a a complex and sophisticated um, and widespread sort of network of powers to for surveillance, powers to monitor and control how we are able to um, be online, how we're able to communicate with each Mm. other and how those that kind of information can be used um, either against us or to silence us. It's it's quite alarming. And I think when you look, when you zoom out even further and we look at things like the news media bargaining code and all the work that's happening in um, digital identity and mm-hmm. facial recognition, it all starts to piece together, yeah, this very alarming landscape of um, encroachments on digital rights. Yeah, definitely. Um, and really appreciate you drawing it all out. Um, so just to just to wrap up, where can listeners find out more about the basic online safety expectations? Because that was a, it was a lot of information, and um, you, yeah. you laid it out really well. But I'm sure people um, will probably want to learn a bit more, and also how to make a last minute submission to that public consultation, and also about the work of Digital Rights Watch. Yeah, uh, so I mean, our website um, digitalrightswatch.org.au is where we will, you know, we always post things like explainers and, mm-hmm. you know, we'll post our submissions so people can have a look. Um, if you follow us on social media as well, that's probably a bit more like on the fly. We'll often post um, things on social media to keep people up to date. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the basic online safety expectations, thankfully that public consultation has actually just been extended. So now the deadline is the 12th of November. Oh, wonderful. So, yeah, so there's a bit more time. If people are interested, I definitely encourage them to get involved and make a submission. That process can be a little bit daunting. I totally get it. I have been there. Mm-hmm. Um, so we recently just held a um, an online workshop on how to write your own policy submissions. So we did that in partnership with Electronic Frontiers Australia. Mm-hmm. So that's on YouTube, um, which you can find, you know, via social media or just Google it, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that is a sort of sets people through kind of tips and tricks of what to look for, how to craft your own submissions. So it kind of yeah, it's, it's a handy guide for anyone who is interested but is not sure where to start. Awesome. Um, we will continue to post, you know, more around the safety expectations in particular to sort of give people a bit more of a sense so people can watch out for that. Yeah. And then lastly, I would just like to 
you started with it, but just like to re-up the work that um, Scarlet Alliance has been doing in this space. Um, they're also really worth following to to sort of understand um, their perspectives on it as well, which which aligns with what I've been saying about digital rights as well. Yeah, fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Samantha, for taking the time to, to talk us through this complex topic and um, really good to hear the consultation being extended. So encourage people to get involved. Thank you so much for having me. No worries. And that was Samantha Floriani, the program lead at Digital Rights Watch, who joined us to speak about the basic online safety expectations, which fall under the Online Safety Act and provide the minister with broad discretion to define the parameters for digital safety and content restrictions on social media and other online services. Help make 3CR's Trans Day of Audibility broadcast happen. Donate on Give Out Day this Friday, October 15th. Give Out Day is a national day of giving to LGBTIQA plus organisations, community groups and projects. Donations on Give Out Day are doubled by Give Out and their partners. That means that your donation will be matched dollar for dollar. 3CR's Trans Day of Audibility broadcast will bring together a range of queer programmers and presenters to showcase and celebrate underrepresented voices for Trans Day of Visibility in March 2022. Your donation will help elevate and amplify the voices of trans communities as part of this dedicated special broadcast. To donate, just head over to giveout.org.au forward slash 3CR Community Radio before the end of Friday, October 15th or check out our socials or our website at 3cr.org.au. For more information about Give Out Day, check out giveout.org.au. Give Out is a 3CR supporter. You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast, 8.55am. This morning we're going to speak with uh, Ian Rintoul, the spokesperson of the Re- Refugee Action Coalition in Sydney, and we're going to discuss the current safety of people currently detained at the Melbourne Immigration Transit Accommodation, or MITRE, um, after uh, another guard has tested positive to COVID-19. Good morning. Welcome, Ian. Good morning. Um, so we spoke with you in mid-September about a guard testing positive at MITRE um, and now a, a month later there's another report of um, a positive test and potential outbreak. Could you tell us a bit more about this? Uh, yes, the, the, this was the latest episode it just involved uh, actually a more severe example. Uh, there were two, uh, sorry, it's, it's a more, it's a more um, severe example, I think, where two, two compounds inside might have actually been locked down. So Bass 2 and Erskine at least have been, uh, you know, locked down because they're all regarded as uh, close contacts of a, uh, um, a, circo, a circo worker, we believe to be, you know, an activities officer. Um, the, un, unlike last time, uh, these this time people were tested, and uh, they the but <laughs> they only got the tests back yesterday. And so far, everyone who has been tested has tested uh, negative. But it's it's thrown a very I think sharp light on the the lack of seriousness with the the government has taken the risk of COVID inside uh, the detention centres and the very high risk environment uh, that that a detention centre detention centre is. Uh, so, um, but uh, so far, uh, it's uh, there's no there is no outbreak. Uh, but 
Um, we have heard uh, that, uh, as of yesterday, actually two Serco guards in the last month have actually uh, died from COVID. Now, that's, uh, that's what's being told by other Serco officers inside uh, the detention centre. I can't confirm that, but it is just another indication of just um, how big a risk uh, the detention centre is because so many people, you know, guards, other workers, come in and out of the, out of the detention centre um, you know, and you know, back into the community where there's a very high level of community transmission, back into the detention centre, back out again. Uh, so it's very, very clear that the government has left the detention centre at, at a very, not just MITRE, but every detention centre, MITRE in particular perhaps, uh, because of the outbreak in Melbourne, has been uh, left at a very um, you know, high risk. Yeah, well, I was just thinking that as we move towards reopening as well, like um, there's going to be, you know, perhaps a drop in cases, but then another surge in cases um, and community transmission. And I was wondering about, you know, how how that could potentially um, impact detainees in detention centres yeah, across the continent. Um, and do we know at the moment what, what vaccination looks like in detention centres? Uh, what, what protection looks like. Sorry, vaccination, like what the vaccination Vac- rates oh, are. Vaccination, yes. um, we don't, actually. The government's very closed the lips about uh, exactly what the rates are. But anecdotally, um, I think I'd have to say that they're low. Mm-hmm. Um, they're low They're low because uh, IHMS you know, makes appointments. IHMS is the medical provider inside the detention centre. I mean, everybody knows the reputation of IHMS. Uh, they're considered to be an arm of uh, a border force. Um, the level of you know mis- mistrust and suspicion that's associated with them uh, but they're the people who are making appointments for vaccination uh, now that's one of the reasons that they're very low levels of low, low levels of vaccination in my in my opinion they're people just simply have no trust in IHM, IHMS um, there's and all the only information people inside the detention center have is that that's been provided which is like just one sheet of paper you know from the uh, you know from the, you know from the government so it, it is it is a worry uh, as things as things open up the uh, detention centre is going to be like uh, one of those places uh, like exist in some suburbs and certainly Aboriginal communities where there are low levels of vaccination and therefore an even higher risk um, that as things open up um, there will be uh, com- you know the, the high levels of spread uh, inside you know, inside the detention centre in amongst the, the unvaccinated. Yeah, it's really concerning. Um, like even as we move towards very high vaccination rates across the community, that there are these um, demographics and groups of people who don't have high vaccination rates and who are going to be severely affected um, by by this opening up. And, um, yeah, like the government not really taking responsibility for that, especially um, in a case like this. Um, I was wondering, you spoke a bit about transparency just then, but there's obviously a general lack of transparency around detention centres for both those people detained in the detention centres and for the broader public and advocates as well. Um, I was wondering if you could speak about yeah, how this transparency is affecting detainees around COVID-19 and, you know, around and, and um, yeah, and their access to, yeah, to those on the outside as well. 
Um, well, I mean, the main thing in terms of access to the outside has been just the lack of, uh, the, you know, the lack of visitors and the uh, ability for people to be able to visit throughout the, you know, the COVID, you know, the COVID outbreak. Um, but I think that more generally the issue of transparency about how, you know, COVID is actually, you know, is dealt with. I think there's a very big issue um, because there's simply no, no oversight. You know, the regulations and protocols, you know, that mm. are stringently applied, um, you know, outside of the detention centre simply do not apply inside the detention centre. I mean, there's all, and I think that's also one of the things which, you know, breeds the level of, uh, you know, of distrust and lack of respect about, you know, for the, you know, for the government and, can, you know, compounds uh, the, the way in which you know, the detainees believe they're well, in which they are, are actually being treated as worse than, you know, second-class citizens. Mm-hmm. You know, that even though it's a high-risk environment, the normal protocols simply do, you know, do not apply. In Bass 2, for example, uh, people have been locked down. It's impossible to socially distance. Uh, people are in double bunks in very, tri- very tiny rooms. It's impossible to socially distance there, even when they've been the food's been brought to them, so they've not been in. Um, you know, a communal, you know, eating area. Uh, it's impossible for two people to sit inside the room, eat their meal, and and remain socially distanced. It's just it's just impossible. Um, so there are those those kinds of things. I mean, we've got uh, you know we've got evidence uh, you know that it, even when there, when there was communal eating places, that uh, kitchen staff were not you know, routinely were not wearing were not wearing masks. Um, we know um, from the general experience that when people are taken outside of the detention centre for, for a medical appointment, for example, and are brought back into the detention centre, that those the the detainees are actually isolated, uh, but the guards are not. Uh, so there seems to be a, a you know two two different rules. So we know one example where actually one of the detainees was taken to a hospital, got a message from Victorian Health saying that they had been uh, it was a tier one exposure that he was a close contact of someone who was at the hospital, someone was COVID positive at the hospital, placed in in isolation, very severe circumstances actually when he was uh, brought back in one of the worst of the isolation cells inside. Inside MITRE, kept away from the other, the normal area that's used for quarantine. But the guards that were escorting him to the hospital were not, were not, you know, isolated. We're not similarly isolated. Uh, so it's uh, there's a, a range of ways in which the protocols and the expectations, I said, which are stringently enforced outside the detention centre, are not are not enforced inside the detention centre, which I think is something which is just added, you know, added, added adds to the risk um, and just the you know complete suspicion uh, that people have about you know, how COVID is actually being you know dealt with inside the detention centre. Yeah, um, that's really. All of that is really important and distressing. And, yeah, as you say, those kind of conditions as well of isolation, like it's not um, being isolated in a in a hotel room or whatever. It's in very severe conditions where people are isolated and that double standard with the guards um, not, you know, not being isolated. And, yeah, just the risk that that poses to people's lives is is really serious. Yeah, look, the thing, I think people, uh, it's hard to get across, but the thing is actually, it's a solitary confinement cell. I mean, food mm-hmm. is shoved in a slot under the, under the door. There's no PowerPoint inside the, inside the, the cell. Uh, even to control the lights, you've got to yell to the guard, uh, to draw attention if you want the, you know, the lights on, you know, on or off. Uh, the only communication you've got is with, you know, a buzzer. Uh, and I've seen myself, uh, we're from, you know, videos taken inside those detention centers. Uh, people compress those buzzers. Uh, for 
you know, minutes, uh, minutes, minutes, uh, you know, at a time and get absolutely no response, even though they're inside, uh, you know, a cell because of the high risk that they've got, you know, um, you know, medical, some medical complication, but it's not, it's not dealt with. It's not dealt with seriously. The, the, the appeals to the buzzers, even when people have been sick and vomiting, have gone um, you know, unresponded to. Mm, yeah, that's very distressing. Um, I think that you know that it's clear that this is going to be a continuing situation, um, as we say, that could potentially get worse given the opening up um, that we're kind of uh, moving towards. I was wondering if you could tell people where they could follow um, this issue and also, yeah, what how they could get involved in in kind of um, making clear to the government this is not okay? Um, well, there's a range of things that people can do, of course. Uh, I, mean, I mean, most of the information they're going to find, you know, in, you know, in Victoria is going to be on the Refugee Action Collective, uh, you know, website, web, website, Facebook, you know, page uh, down, you know, down there. The information that we get about what's happening in MITRE goes on there. Um, you know, RAC meets every, um, yeah, every Monday night. They can get the details from that. I mean, at the moment it's been meeting on Zoom, but the people can get the details of that and join uh, those those meetings. There have been some very successful meetings recently. Uh, Victoria has been very difficult to, uh, you know, do anything other than by Zoom, you know, as, Recently, but uh, certainly, you know, Iraq and Victoria is very committed to getting organising face-to-face protests uh, again. Had a bit of a go at uh, re-establishing some of those protests outside uh, the uh, the Park Hotel again. So uh, follow the you know Iraq Victoria down there by Iraq uh, Coalition if they want the information. By all means, you know, I mean, contact Victoria Health, contact the you know the the, the, M- the MPs down there uh, to express people's uh, concerns, but. It's going to need more than just contacting, um, you know, politicians <laughs> to get something, uh, something happening. But, it, but even doing that establishes that there's a, a le- there is a level of scrutiny and a, and a level of concern that um, hopefully they respond to. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, as you mentioned just there, there, there have been some um, picnics in protest outside the Park Hotel um, detention centre or Park Hotel where, where um, there are detainees being detained but um, there has been also a heavy police presence at some of those um, protests so uh, yeah I think it's really important um, to continue yeah, to try and make sure that people can protest these things and make, make, the, make these voices heard thank you so much for joining us to update us on the situation side Maida yeah no thanks very much for having me And just then we spoke with Ian Rintoul, the spokesperson for the Refugee Action Coalition in Sydney. We discussed the current safety of people detained in MITRE, Melbourne Immigration Transit Accommodation, in Broadmeadows after another guard tested positive to COVID-19. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards Plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID to no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. 
to having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. So, here you are. Too foreign for home. Too foreign for here. Never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo. Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Yan. You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast, 8.55 a.m. And just then you heard part of Jittera, um, a song by our next guest, Banalori, a Murning elder and whale songman from the Nullarbor. And he is a founding member of the band Coloured Stone and has spent many years fighting to protect his country, especially the place now known as the Great Australian Bight. And this uh, week, there was the first stage of this UN Biodiversity Conference held in Kunming, China, and 
while nation states are setting these targets for biodiversity protection that we know may or may not be met, we wanted to turn our attention to the knowledge of First Nations people in protecting lands and waters across this continent. So Bunner's going to join us today to talk about protecting country and you know why it's important to learn about the animals and plants we're talking about when we say biodiversity. So welcome, Bunner. Thanks so much for joining us. Yes, welcome and good morning. Could I just get you to um, begin by introducing yourself for listeners? Yeah. My name is uh, Bunner Laurie. Uh, I'm a Murning whale songman from the Murning tribe on the Nullarbor. Uh, and also I'm the original outstanding member of the Aboriginal band Kalistan, um, you know, one of the last surviving um, um, Aboriginal musicians in this country. Um, yeah, look, uh, that's a couple of the Nullarbor now. Our tribe, we, we are the... We are the people of the whale, and our totem is the whale, and our responsibility and duties are, you know, looking after the marine life and the coastal, coastal, uh, you know, sea country of the Great Australian Bight. And then our, our, uh, our tribe, the Nurnie tribe, and my, my grandfather, you know, was, was the chief of that tribe, and uh, his responsibility and duty, and, you know, also was carried out responsibility and duties at you know, from our ancestors who, who looked after this, this beautiful country for more than well, over 65,000 years. And that's why today, you know, that, that country and that sea coast is, it's, it's beautiful and pristine. It's beautiful and pristine today. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's uh, very important to think about the fact that this this country has been cared for, um, and that is why it's, it's in such beautiful condition today. Um, I wanted to begin, I know that you've been involved in some really big, um, fights to protect country, especially from multinational oil companies, um, some of the biggest names like BP, Santos, Equinor. Um, but before we talk about, you know, struggles and campaigns, I'm wondering if you could just give us a bit more of a description of um, that country along the Nullarbor and the whales and other marine life that live there. Well, it's, it's, it's a very... Uh very, uh, it's a very big state, big, big, very big state. It's unbelievable. It's, it's incredible. Biodiversity of, uh, you know, marine life and uh, it's just it's an incredible, uh, incredible sea and incredible coast. Um, it's, it's one of its kind, one of its kind and uh, it's honestly and truly, it's one of the last, last beautiful, incredible, pristine places, you know, on this planet. You know, that, that is still beautiful today and that it's, you know, it's it's abundant in, in fish life, abundant in marine life, abundant in in uh, you know you know things like it's I call it from the, the garden of the deep blue sea. You know, and you know you all these beautiful creatures and dolphins to uh, you know seals, the um, seahorses, and you know, things that um, I think uh, non-indigenous people really didn't see before. It's all there hidden in the sea. It's, until you go diving and exploring, mm. you know, when you, you come across things that you've never seen before, and are we finding a lot of things today? You know, that, you know, new things that um, we we thought we would come from another planet, but it's all here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, oh, it's all here. You know. Mm. And those beautiful whales. I was watching some, you know, videos on YouTube. Um, 
of you sitting on on the cliff and watching the whales and um I know that that area is also a, a whale nursery, so um, whales come come to. It's a whale nursery, whale nursery, whale sanctuary, and, and you know, like I said, it's, it's a place where the whales come. It's it's their it's their home. It's their, it's a it's their home that they go at. You know, like just like us morning people. You know, we, um, they call it. Uh, you know, we 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 go from one one area, bush like a place to the other, and so same as the whales. You know, when they go to go and mate. Uh, they have a special place where they do the mate and they're breeding and then and rearing up their children. So they move around, you know, and um, uh, you know, and, and the source of the habitat, the habitat, you know, it's a, it's a normal habitat. They come there and then they feed the young and they teach the young. It's a teaching place. We say in our learning, learning that word, learning in our language. Mm. It's one word, but it means up to 100 or 200 different meanings. You know, you cut it in two different places. And uh, you can jigsaw it and make make about twenty different different words and meaning out of it. So, learnings mean listening, mm. learn, understand, observe. And when you when you do that, you get you get wisdom and you get knowledge, and it just goes on. You know, learning it's unbelievable. So you cut it in half and you get learn. And did you say did I hear that? Did I hear what you said? I hear it, learning. Then you get mirror. You can get mirror out of that. It means echo. So it's it's a place of echo. Everything echoes along that country, you know. You know, from the sea, from the sound of the sea, you know, to, to the sound of the birds, to the sound of the wind. It's it's, it's it's all elements, all elements that work together in in, in the creation of of Mother Nature and the great creators created all this beautiful thing for us all. You know, to to give us a comfortable life, to give give us give us a life where we can breathe beautiful fresh air and. Uh, and the sea is a healing place as well, you know. And that's why the whales, you know, us learning, we we are family. We are connected to that place. We're connected forever. And, you know, it's 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 a beautiful gift, you know. We we give praise and thanks to to the you know to the great creators who created us and 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 gave us these beautiful gifts. Everything that we have, like the sun, the sun is a gift. The moon is a gift. The stars a gift. And they all work together with the sea. And they all work together with the land. So it's everything's all. Oh, we're all one. We're all, you know, we're all one. Mm. And, you know, humans to to all the creatures, all the marine life in the sea and everything that's in the sea, we're all one. You know, so those are gifts. And uh, people have to realize that you've got to be connected to learn to understand. And that's one of the things that that same word, learning, learning means all that. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's, yeah. I mean, that it is really is everything, isn't it? And it, um, it, it's kind of humbling to, to think about. Um, I mentioned some of the fights that you've been involved in um, with your people protecting country from deep sea drilling um, that has been proposed for the bite countless times, it seems like. There's just been a succession of oil and gas companies that have thought, mm, maybe we can get some oil out of here. Could you tell us a bit about some of these um, fights you've been involved in? And I don't know, there's something um, really important, a lesson about... Um, like community standing up to really massive uh, multinational corporations. No, we've we've had a lot of, a lot of things here in Adelaide. I've been to the ones in Melbourne as well, and I've been to the ones in, you know, even 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 in, into those uh, what they call it they call it the paddle apps and all that. With a lot of people that started to started to realise how important the sea is, and started to realise that you know that oil was 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 going to destroy. You know what what they 
they, they realized that the, the Gulf of Mexico is still leaking today, you know, that the oil had been killed over, you know, 80,000 to 100,000, uh, you know, fish in the sea and uh, uh, seals to, uh, to whales, to dolphins, all the creatures on the coast. You know, and it's just still leaking today. And they say they, these oil companies, they, 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 they say, oh, no, it's, we've done good well. We've took all, we've taken all the oil out. It's all covered up. It's not going to. Just gonna, there's no more oil there. They totally lie because they don't really know, understand. This world is it's a big world, you know. And oil, well, it'll go on forever leaking because it's a, it's a region for why that oil is in the earth. You know, it's, it's like we we have oil in our bodies, you know, and it's a region for why, you know, everything moves and it's a living being. It's kind of earth, it's a, a living being. That's why they call it the mother because it, it cares for it and gives us everything. But one of the, you know, I've met a lot of people and then a lot of people started to come to, to realize and I always teach them because about connecting them, connecting to the earth and to understand the earth because one of the reasons why we, we need to understand why, why there's all in the sea and we need to understand why the ocean is like that and understand why the earth is like that because there's a living thing. It's, it's everything fertile. The sea is fertile. The, the sea to us is it's family. And the whale and the marine life, I thought, it's family. So we say in our language, you know, Yumri, Gunmanira, you know, we are the friendly people and people of knowledge and, and the people who was here before anybody came to this country. And we were here all the time and we try to teach people. But people came in with the eyes, with dollar signs in their eyes and, and you know, with tourists and, uh, you know, it's with resorts in their minds of, of the building building these luxury places to make money. But, you know, to us, the, the meaning of, of life is very simple. It's to live a, live a natural life and then to treat everything everything as your family because, you know, you, you sleep on the land, you go out and lay in a boat or a canoe and, and, you, and you fall asleep because the sea is going to be there all the time for and it's like the wind. But one of the... Um, <coughs> we fought on Four of uh, four different um, four different uh, oil companies, you know, so far, and you know, and and it was a struggle. But when when I when I, when I come along, you know, and uh, we were holding big uh, marches from from the city to the bay, which is about twelve kilometer walk. And you know what? We had thirty thousand people turn up for that to, to join in the the, the fight for the right to stand up to the to the government of, of South Australia and, and and to whoever you know to, to show our you know, our strength into how much we we love we love the sea and, and respect the sea. And thirty thousand people on that day, that was about four four or five years back now and uh, so in two thousand nineteen we had to I was one of the panelists who was started along with Peter Owen from the Wilderness Society. And if you've got Wilderness Society also in in, in Melbourne and we have Wilderness Wilderness Society um, office and Based here in um, Adelaide, and a lot of people were together with Sea Shepherd. So we, we got together with Sea Shepherd, and we went out and went out on, on, on the ship, and you know, two weeks out in the sea from, from Melbourne, from Melbourne. Not you saw that film called Sea Shepherd, a documentary, and that we made, and went out to his island to document all the beautiful marine life on those islands, and and we had divers going and diving and to do filming and and doing. Um, Filming from drones to from the top to the bottom, and to show that the, uh, the sea is a living life, 
is very important to us. And so we were selected to seven members, and we flew all the way from Adelaide, and, and they, some of them flew from Melbourne and Sydney. We met up in in Oslo, you know, 24-hour flight, 25-hour flight to Oslo. Well, I think it was the capital of that. Norway, Norwegian, and it's, it's a not a strange country, but you know you would think you're in Russia or Germany, so maybe the houses are quite different to the ones in Australia, but the people are quite different. But uh, we went there, and we we you know our mob went to the to the talk, spoke to government. And there was a young uh, young team of uh, young youth people who were, who were fighting and putting a lawsuit against uh, the government there in uh, in Norway because of that. Uh, it was about about their future, they're destroying the land and destroying the sea. Mm. Really Bana, I'm really sorry to interrupt you, but we're running low on time. Um, it's such an important story, that story of going to Norway and speaking to people and also everything that you've brought up around oil and around um, respect for the sea and respect for the marine life and understanding that, you know, oil isn't just, it's not just about climate change, it's also about um potential destruction of habitat and that oil leaking into the sea. Um, there's so yep. many things. So I just want to say thank you so much for joining us this morning and speaking a bit about your country and about the whales and um, the importance of protecting that biodiversity as well. No worries. I didn't realise it was short. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. We'll have to have you on again. We'll have to have we won the fight in, in, um, in, in Norway and in Slovenia, you know, went to the headquarters and then and tell them off that you're not welcome to this country. Sorry, that's what we tell them. Yeah, and you won, and that that is really important to remember. It was a win. Yeah. Thank you so much, Funalori, a Merning Elder and Whale Songman from the Nullarbor, joining us there to talk about um, Merning Country, whales, and protecting the sea. I think that's about all we've got time for today on 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. So thank you so much for tuning in again. Uh, we really appreciate your company and just reminding everyone to stay safe out there, take care of yourselves, um, check in with each other, and make sure to keep checking those exposure sites, taking those precautions, and get vaccinated if you can. We'll catch you next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.